Welcome to the Point Crawl Podcast. I'm your host, Connor Seitz-Bowen. This week's podcast takes us to the place of shelter and refuge. Point of interest? Metaphor. So the theme for this week's episode is place of shelter and refuge. The topic is improving one's home. But place of shelter and refuge is an Abrahamic description literally refers to half a dozen specific cities which were as advertised. They were places that people fleeing biblical conflicts could go uh, if they were from different particular tribes, uh, and they would be safe there. It would be okay for them to go to those cities. And those were some of the laws that were emerging from the new state of Israel as uh, Moses and the rest were finally arriving out of the desert. Metaphorically, the phrase has come to mean both the church and the personages of God, divinity itself, as physically being such places that that a city and civic harmony and a house and the harmony of one's own home and one's own relationship with the eternal could all be thought of as places of shelter and refuge, what they might be giants calls a little birdhouse in your soul. So that's what we're focusing on this week, strengthening the bond between one's home, oneself, and one's uh, soul, really. Point of interest, garbage day. Wednesday night's trash night at my house. The stuff gets collected on Thursday morning, but Wednesday night's the night that it gets put out. So cans go out to the curb, and then in addition to that, I try to make it a bit of a ritual. And there are a couple of elements to this ritual. One is moving in a clockwise fashion through the whole house and grabbing all of the trash out of all of the trash cans, emptying all of those out too. Because the city can always take one more bag, there's always one more bag that can be found, you know. The second one is to go through the whole house in that same clockwise fashion, looking for recycling, and looking by material. It's good to look at the spaces that you inhabit with fresh eyes, or with a new lens, every once in a while, and... Looking at it in terms of material is a pretty good way to do that. If you're just looking for cardboard, there are only a couple of particular shades of brown and white and maybe the Amazon logo that you really need to look for. And you'll find cardboard all over and just take it out and flatten it and take it out to the curb. It's always good to clean spaces out, to have less things, fewer things to have to deal with. That's usually when I clean the cat boxes. I clean them other times during the week, but definitely every Wednesday because they can go right out. Last part of the ritual is looking at what's in the fridge and seeing if there's anything that's a little past its prime, if you know what I mean. Getting that kind of stuff out, not even hanging out in a trash can, but straight out to the curb is ideal. So... Maybe think about your trash day as more of a ritual day. It's not a chore to be upset about every week. It's an exciting opportunity 
to let go of more things in your life. A little bit less stuff, a little bit more peace of mind, fewer trash smells, if you had trash smells to begin with. I hope you didn't. Point of interest, the Great Highland Banjo Jam Session. One of the times that my house feels most like a home is when there's music, live music inside the house. My housemate Cameron plays the bagpipes and the flute. Uh, my housemate Marcus plays the guitar. Their friend Pat will come over and play the mandolin and the banjo. Together, Cameron and Pat are the uh, Great Highland Banjo. That's the name of their band. And uh, they come jam at my house. It's, it's great. It's a fun afternoon. Uh, we drink some beers. We hang out. Uh, they practice. and It's good fun. So this is a little excerpt from one of those afternoons, uh, yesterday afternoon actually, and the topic of conversation was about migration and about home and a little bit about guitars and mandolins and where different instruments come from and what the feeling of loneliness and longing for home and its relationship to instrumentation has been like over the years within folk music. So here's that. Uh, one of the big rhythm instruments, if you don't have a guitarist, you usually have a bazooki player, and that is directly from the Greek. And the Greeks got it directly like 100 years ago from Anatola. So okay. like this like bedrock foundational instrument of Irish traditional music is ultimately probably Turkish. Yeah. Like if in terms of like the musical origin of it. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of... Um... Oh, there's a band I like called Luar na Lubre, uh, which is from, I think, Galicia? Oh, which yeah. Which is the northern part of Spain. They're a Celtic, they're a Celtic nation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly, right? Except <coughs> the thing is, their music sounds, because it's Spanish-influenced, it's, but the instrumentation is from Eastern Europe, the sound ends up being somewhere between Middle Eastern and Irish. Which, like, it does make sense, but it's kind of like three historical forces separating and then, like, coming back, you know? When it comes down to people always think about, like, the monoculture. Like, it's all, like, it, people were doing this 500 years ago in Ireland, and, like, the more and more you learn about folk music, it is, like, multiculturalism incarnate. Yeah. Like, it's like everything comes from somewhere else. Like, they were like, oh, that's a good idea. Why don't we do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody was coming from somewhere else, right? Yeah. The leaving of Limerick. Leaving, yeah, leaving Liverpool. You got that up? Yeah, I do. Liverpool. I can, play, I can play it in D two different ways, too, because it's the pipe music. Let me um, think about how to do it in D. <clears throat>
counter melody or like try to that's why like I went to that just because I'm having trouble with the chords in the key of D. Like, I know it's D, G, and A, but A is kind of a weird... Like, A is not usual. A is like that. If you guys see me doing this with my finger, yell at me. Because I'm really trying to break that habit. i got to flatten that shit out. you got to do oh, the... Yeah. Get the fingers are flat. Yeah, flat. Flat fingers. fingers. Point of interest. The cleaner of myths. I had a lot of trouble when I started college adjusting to the workload. Really early on in my first semester, I picked up a book called Getting Things Done, which was a whole guide to personal productivity and uh, keeping your shit together, keeping a handle on everything that you needed to do and, and keeping the right lists of actions you need to take to maintain those things. I really needed those kinds of systems. I, I'm very good at moment-to-moment -moment focus. What I'm not good at is keeping a chain of tasks correct and in the correct order in my mind. Uh, so I really need to have that externalized. I need to have a system for that. When I was 21, after I finished school, my partner and I moved to Los Angeles for a very strange year. And during that year, I tried to write an urban fantasy book. You're supposed to write what you know, so I knew a lot about how to be neurotic about organization, so I made the main character a professional organizer. The writing is awful, too dreadful for me to read aloud here, but I did describe the novel, or my attempt at it, to my housemate, H. William Davis, who himself has written five books. No Joy is his most recent. It's a novel all about Pittsburgh. It is hilarious, farcical, very accurate in its depiction of the punk scene and of what it's like to take public transit and wander around the streets of the city. I have the tape of that conversation right here. I want to tell you about a piece of writing that I did years and years and years ago. And this piece of writing is called The Cleaner of Myths. And it is about a guy who is living in Los Angeles. And at the time, I was living in Los Angeles. He is a person who grew up in a situation where his parents got divorced and then his dad kind of spiraled downwards and the house got dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. He would keep it clean, but he wasn't allowed to throw anything out because his dad was a hoarder, had become a hoarder and an alcoholic. And so he just organized all of it and kept it, you know, contained, but there. And then his dad passed, and he had this traumatic, imprinted memory of the cleaners who were sent into the house to start hauling all the trash out, who were wearing, like, biohazard suits, but who he thought of as like, trash angels. Because they took all of this bad stuff that his dad had collected out. The next time he saw the house, it was, like, empty. It was empty of everything, but it was empty. So he becomes a professional organizer. He lives in L.A. Rich people pay him shit tons of money to keep their lives together. His professional life is sort of half Kafka, half Gohan, because that's what Los Angeles is like. And then a creature is attracted to his cleaning habits, who is also a cleaner and organizer of the world, but in like a upsetting-to-human systems mm -hmm. way. So he is a little insectoid businessman 
a foot and a half tall, called the Gray Worrier. His hands are always worrying, and one set of hands is always kind of holding itself and worrying, and another set of hands is opening and closing briefcases, and another set of hands is taking notes and writing. He does nothing but process and organize and process and organize and process and organize. And like a consultant from the 80s, gone tiny and bad. And he doesn't really get permission from anybody to do this. So it's really upsetting when like a tree greets the dawn one morning and its leaves have been reordered by size and stitched back on with strange warrior magic. Where he falls apart is that there's no greater organization to that organization. He's worrying for worry's sake. And that's that's the insectoid and ant-like part of him where there's no there's no oversight. There's just command and control with no care. And so at first the Grey Warrior introduces this professional organizer into the hidden world, and then he becomes the villain of the story, and his worrying goes out of control and becomes this thing that only this professional organizer who is informed by trauma and grew up in a household with a hoarder can stop through his own, I guess, healing process and outlook on how people ought to face their material possessions and their lives. And I wrote this when I was 22 or 23, and it was really, it was all I was thinking about. What did you do with the story? I got about four chapters into it, and then we moved, and I couldn't write about L.A. anymore. There was a huge snake with a crowned head forever resting that head on the top of the Capitol Records building, and its children were tens of thousands of dragon eggs waiting inside of shipping containers and storage units all over the Inland Empire, waiting to hatch all at once. His hobby when he's not at work is to go to storage sales, purchase a storage unit, and then carefully deaccession the whole thing, selling off everything that's worth selling and organizing and returning any record in much better and much more well-organized condition than when he first encounters them. And he just gives his professional services away to random strangers whose storage units he buys. And in this particular case, he buys a storage unit that has one of these dragon eggs, and that's why the Grey Warrior shows up. It's weird, man. The cleaner of myths. Point of interest, the leaving of Liverpool. Here's a little bit more from that jam session with the Great Highland Banjo. This part's got a little bit of crosstalk, but it also has the boys singing, so I thought you guys might like that, so I put it in. Man's a sailor, he will get along, and if not, 
<laughs> I do. I, you have to clear the window on this quite often, or else those high notes squeal. Yeah. Well, that's always like I remember seeing um, old Chieftain's videos when they had just the whistle player. Yeah. That's like what he is constantly doing. Yeah. No, literally a, every the second. The condensation builds up on the on the window. And that messes with the tone. Yep. Some notes about the music. This is My Old Kentucky Home as played on a musical saw by the inventor of the musical saw or propagator of saws used in a musical way, Ford Hanford. It's a novelty recording from 1921. The saw is played by placing one hand firmly on the end of the saw and moving it, uh, causing the saw to bow at different angles. And meanwhile, you use either a violin bow or a felt hammer and cause vibrations to start happening in the saw, and then you use the changing the bowing of the saw to change the angle and change the frequency of the sound that gets produced. The frequencies are almost fundamental harmonic tones. In that way, they're nearly electronic. They sound a little bit like a theremin. Enjoy. <laughs> 